the passage we come to this morning, Genesis 6, verses 9 through chapter 8, verse 22, is about uh, the flood. It's a very familiar story. It's a long passage. It's very detailed. And, and this passage is, I think, as architecturally precise as the instructions are in the passage for Noah's Ark. If we were to take all of this passage and just step back and look at the shape of what the passage is is saying, the, the shape of the passage itself, then we will see a main point very clearly. So I'm, I'm trying to simplify this as much as possible for us by summarizing the shape of this passage. Uh, you see, I've put this in, in color codes. Uh, so, you know, one goes, the black goes with the black, green goes with the green. This happens throughout the, the passage. It, it begins with God's promise to destroy humanity. It ends at the bottom with God's promise not to destroy humanity. See, there's a shape to it. After that, Noah builds an ark. Before the very end, Noah builds an altar. There's 40 days of flooding. After the flood, there's 40 days of drying. When you see a biblical passage shaped in this shape, it is trying to communicate the middle point. It is all pointing to the middle portion. That's the main thing we're hearing about today. 150 days of water prevailing as God blots sinners out. And then after that, 150 days of water subsiding as God remembers Noah. That middle point is the clear main point of this passage. I think we should all be really careful that we do not treat Jesus like he is some sort of fire insurance policy. You know, you never think about maybe your uh, fire insurance policy until those moments where you're thinking about the possibility that your house may burn down. Otherwise, it makes no difference to you. And in those moments, you're thinking, well, I'm grateful that I have an insurance policy because on that day, it won't affect me all that greatly. Jesus is not a fire insurance policy that we never think of except when we think about the day of judgment. No one should feel safe from God's judgment for our sin if we just use His Son. And yet, we have this passage. When we take in the sights and the sounds of a worldwide, merciless, drowning, crushing flood, God means to silence that voice inside of us when we're tempted to say, where is the promise of His coming? Is he ever going to return and will he ever judge? He wants to silence any kind of thought anyone has that God is too much of a granddaddy to destroy sinners. And he is using this passage to say, escape from my wrath by fleeing to my son. Here is the the message of Genesis 6, 9 through 8, 22 in a sentence. Take cover in God's ark or be covered by God's wrath. Take cover in God's ark or be covered by God's wrath. Point number one, 
comes from the rest of chapter 6, verses 9 through 22, where we see one righteous man in a ruined world. One righteous man in a ruined world. Read with me in chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Remember, this is saying, what became of Noah? What became of Noah in in the world that we heard about last time? And if you look back up in chapter 6, verses 5 through 7, in this world where God is regretting that he ever made this world because it is filled with people whose It says, their every intention is only evil all the time. What became of Noah in that world? The God who in Genesis 1, remember how he ordered creation by separating light from darkness, waters from the earth. He in our passage is separating those inside the ark, from those outside the ark. He's separating and making a distinction between Noah and his whole generation. And in this distinction, it matters which which group you're in because we're taught that God ruins the ruined and that God rewards the righteous. God ruins the ruined. Look in... Chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. If you look in verse 12, we hear an echo from Genesis 1. We hear back there, remember how God saw, he saw everything that he had made. And back there, it said that it was very good. Everything that God does is good. And so when we read in verse 12 that God saw something, we're remembering God does everything right, including what he's saying he's going to do here. This determination to destroy all sinners is good. And I want to show that to you in the words that are chosen here. That word destroy in verse 13 is the same word as the word corrupt in verses 11 and 12. I, so I've translated it ruin. God ruins the ruin. These are the same word. God, what he does is he sees this world that he had made good, but now he sees it differently than he saw it before. Verse 11 says that world is ruined because it's filled no longer with love, but with violence. Now, the nation who originally received Genesis, Israel, they were surrounded by all kinds of nations, And all of them knew about the flood. They all had a story of a flood. But all the rest of them came up with explanations that were more acceptable to them than what we've just read. 
Let me give you an example. The Babylonians believed that their gods were like moody parents. And these parents, these gods, were listening to their kids get too loud. And so they, they send the flood as if to say, stop that racket. Now, that's plausible to me. Uh, I don't know if it's plausible to you. If it's not plausible to you that uh, you can imagine a kind of God who's kind of like you. And if the kids get too loud, if you don't believe that sort of thing, you're welcome to my house any afternoon. And you will hear the kind of racket that my five children can make. They came up with an explanation for what really happened according to what was acceptable to them. Israel knows better than that. Israel knows that God's justice is retributive. It's retributive. What that means is the punishment always fits the crime. That's in the very words that we have just read together. Verse 12, the earth, listen, was ruined because all flesh, every human, it says, the earth was ruined because every human had ruined their own way. They had chosen to ruin their walk, their their life. And so God tells Noah in verse 13, therefore, because they have ruined my earth by ruining their own way, I will ruin them with this earth that they have ruined. They ruined, so I will ruin. The punishment fits the crime. Beloved, on the day of judgment, God is not going to be random. He is not going to be reckless. He will give a kind of living destruction. I mean, an unending, a kind of destruction that doesn't actually finish them. An unending destruction to sinners because that's exactly what they've earned. In other words, the wages of sin really is death. And so God makes that affirmation in the flood. But he doesn't just ruin the ruined. God also rewards the righteous. If you look back in verse 9, it says Noah was righteous. We have to read verse 9 in light of verse 8. Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, remember we, we talked about this when we covered that passage. Noah found favor the way that you and I might find something that we were not looking for, that we could never have rightly expected to find. Noah found favor from God in that way, and he was righteous in that way. Noah's righteous standing before God is grace. So that word favor is the word grace. It is a gift from God, his righteousness, and the fact that his grace then made Noah righteous is a gift from God. Verse 9 is telling us that Noah was blameless in his generation in comparison to the rest of his generation because God was gracious to him. And because God was gracious to Noah, his life really was found without that blemish of corruption and violence that we see throughout all of the rest of the world. He alone, in his day, is walking with God. That is to say that Noah is not walking like everyone else, like the world. He's conforming his ways to the ways of the one who he's walking with. Now, a few years ago, 
um, I had the, the task of installing a ceiling fan. Why are you all laughing already? In my house. And I opened up that box and, and then a book fell out. And, and I opened that book. And it was chapters and chapters of a diagram and numbers and arrows and pieces. And, and I did two things. First, I called a cardiologist because uh, I was having a panic attack. And then after I got off the phone with a cardiologist, I called Cooper because Cooper has a clue. And I said, hey, Coop, what you doing? And Cooper came in and he installed my ceiling fan. Verse 14. The Lord tells Noah to make an ark. That's, it's more a box than a boat, if you're imagining a boat. Really, the thing that you should be imagining that you know what it looks like, it's a coffin. It looks like a coffin. And it's filled, literally, it says in verse 14, with nests. And God is communicating to Noah that the living quarters in this ark will be like like those homes of baby chickens. Chickens, not chickens. They don't live in nests. Let's say little baby birds, baby birds. Uh, it's a tender picture. If you can imagine what chicken, not what chickens live in. They, they're going to receive in these nests the loving care and security as if their mother is, is preparing this world for them that's safe and secure. Verses 15 through 21 is that assembly manual, kind of like the one I opened. Look in verses 15 through 21. This would give me the fatal conniption that I'm waiting for. You can ask Kelly. uh, I shut down a few days over the Christmas uh, holidays whenever she told me that the dollhouse we got for our little girls was going to take us an hour and a half to put together. I I put it off for a long time. This is a huge project that Noah has. I've got a little picture, uh, not that I drew. I wanted you guys to, to see it. This is the size of the ark. You can see how long it is. You can see in comparison to a house how tall it is, how big it is compared to an elephant over there. This is massive. And notice what it says about Noah when he gets that assembly manual in chapter 6, verse 22. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. He did that without any construction crew, without any cranes, without any chainsaws. Every detail of what God commands in verses 15 through 21, Noah did that, it says literally, just so, exactly what, step by step, what God had commanded to him. Friends, Noah's Obedience was perfect in this regard. Perfect to God's command and it took him a century. It took him a century. And he was obedient throughout that time. Look back in chapter 6, verse 17. God said, Behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you 
shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives. Noah did what he did for a hundred years because he understood what a covenant was. He understood that he was, when God graciously made this binding promise to him, he was then to conform all of his life, a hundred years, to the requirements of that old word. He's not getting fresh words from the Lord. He's just counting on what he said from the Lord. So that the book of Hebrews says this about Noah. By faith, Noah. And that old word, that one word in chapter 6. Being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen. In reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world. And became an heir of the righteousness that comes By faith. Take cover in God's ark or be covered by God's wrath. If you were living in Noah's day and 2 Peter says that he was a herald of righteousness, he believed that message and he was telling it to other people. If if you lived in Noah's day and he preached this message to you, you would know how much you depend on Noah. God gave Noah the blueprint for that ark that would save a few people. That is eight persons. God gave Noah the responsibility to build that ark. And therefore you would understand how much you need Noah. Seven people, Noah's wife, his three sons and their wives knew the only way that they would be kept alive whenever the waters fell was if They were with the one man that had a covenant with God. This is what chapter 6 is teaching. You escape God's wrath with Noah. Point number 2 comes from chapter 7. Chapter 7, we see an ark rising above the flood. An ark rising is rising above the flood. Turn to chapter 7, verse 16. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. Again, the word is only with Noah. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. Few are shut in. That's the language. Few are shut in from the flood. And we know that that means many. All the rest of the world are shut, locked outside the ark. What we see in chapter 7, verses 17 through 22, is God decreating, decreating. Remember back in creation, what God did was He separated 
the waters in heaven from the waters on earth. And here he says, the language is, is it, it reverses exactly what he did in Genesis 1. God is turning back on what he did in Genesis 1. What he does is he opens the hatch at the floor of heaven's ocean. He opens that hatch and then it all comes down. And this is more horrible than any footage you've seen on CNN of a tsunami. This, friends, happened and it is more horrible than anything Hollywood has ever imagined. Look at the words in verses 17 through 22. The waters increased. The waters prevailed. So there are people who are fighting to prevail over the waters. But the waters are what is increasing greatly. The waters prevailed mightily on the earth and above the mountains, covering them all flesh died. And then we have verse 23. God blotted out every living thing that was on the face of of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were, again, with him in the ark. The message to everyone who will not be a scoffer like Peter talked about, who are not waiting, they're unaware of the promise of God. The message to everyone who would put themselves under God's word is very clear. Outside of the ark is not a drop of mercy. The message is also inside of the ark. There is not a drop of wrath. There is not a drop of wrath that gets inside that ark. And so the message is, get in the ark with Noah. What I want us to see from this passage most clearly is the gospel formula that verse upon verse keeps repeating. What I want us to see through these verses, and so I'm going to actually walk through several of these verses because this repetition is meant to get into us. What what God says over and over again is outside the ark is not a drop of mercy, but inside the ark, ark there is not a drop of wrath. Salvation is in the ark with Noah. Let's look. Chapter 6. Let's go back there to verse 18. Chapter 6, verse 18. I establish my covenant with you. You shall come, where? Into the ark. You and all those with you, it says in verse 18. Notice this, the gospel formula that salvation is in the ark with Noah in the very next verse. Verse 19. It says at the, toward the middle there, every sort of animal from all flesh that goes into the ark will be kept safe with you. In the ark with you is safety. Verse 20. At the end there. Two of every sort shall come in to you to keep them alive. Now, in the ark and with Noah are brought 
together. And then look in chapter 7, verse 1. Go into the ark, you and all your household. Then verse... Look at the reason in chapter 7, verse 1. The reason your household can, can get into the ark and have salvation is because I've seen not that they are righteous, but you are righteous. They need to be with you in that ark. Chapter 7, verse 2. Take with you all these animals. Verse 3 says the same thing toward the end. They will... I will keep their offspring alive on the face of the ark, earth if they are in the ark with you. Chapter 7, verse 7. Makes this point again. Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him went into the ark. I could give more. Let me just finish with what we just read in chapter 7, verse 23. Only Noah was left. And those who were with him in the ark. If God's world is going to be clean the way it must be clean, he says he's going to purge it, blot out as a washing word. He will purge it clean, which means sinners must perish. Take cover. With Noah in God's ark, or you will be covered by God's wrath. We know that our passage uh, and the salvation of Noah is consistent with that first promise in chapter 3 15 that God says a real Savior is going to come, and He's going to come now through Noah's family. This is ultimately why Noah is saved, because He will have a son long down the line who will be the real Savior. Let me tell you two ways that this story of God's flood and Noah's ark is really about Jesus. What Genesis 6 through 8 is teaching us is two things. Number one, take cover from God's wrath with the new Noah. Take cover from God's wrath with the new Noah. Paul in Romans 5 says... For as by the one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, the many were made sinners, so by the one man, talking about Jesus, one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Noah had one act of obedience. He made that ark and seven other people were saved because of that one man's one act of obedience. Whenever Paul is speaking of Jesus' righteousness, he's talking about a kind of righteousness that's totally different than the righteousness we read about from Noah. Jesus is blameless, not just in comparison to everyone in this generation or any generation. Jesus is called blameless in comparison to a holy God. In other words, Jesus doesn't have a single sin that God would need to forgive. He walked with God Perfectly, so that when he took the cross, what he was doing was the one act of obedience that God had made a covenant with him even before he created the world that Jesus would then come and do. Take a cross. Jesus is the new Noah. And he's new in, in a sense that he comes after Noah, but that plan was made before Noah was even born. 
Jesus is the one that this story is calling us to because Jesus is the one that we must find ourselves with. Sinners who unite themselves with Jesus will escape God's wrath. Faith in the crucified. That's his act. The cross, the crucified Jesus, faith in him and that act unites us to the righteous one and, 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 and he makes us righteous. And we need that righteousness if we're going to get to heaven. Take cover from God's wrath with the new no. You've got to be with Jesus if you're going to survive the waters of wrath. But secondly, this passage calls us to take cover from God's wrath in, not just with the new Noah, but in the new ark. It's exactly the way the apostles speak about what Jesus did. First Peter chapter 3. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In that ark, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Listen to what he says in verse 21. Baptism which corresponds to what was just said in verse 20, now saves you. Not talking about the act of baptism, the, the act of getting in the water as a removal of dirt from the body, but as what, what, what baptism pictures, that appeal, that faith to God. Cleanse me. Cleanse me. Cleanse my conscience of all my guilt through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. He's risen above and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What Peter is saying is that there is a new ark that we have to get in. It's a new coffin that, ironically, is what God uses to deliver us from death. Now, Peter says, the ark is baptism into the tomb of Jesus. And what, what baptism again means is, is faith believing that the death of Jesus led to the resurrection of Jesus. It's believing that God covered Jesus in our place. He covered Jesus with his wrath on the cross, but then he didn't leave him dead. He raised Jesus from the dead. So that Genesis 6 is calling us to do what all of the Bible calls us to do. If we take cover from God's wrath under the shelter of Jesus' blood, if we do that, then when God pours wrath mightily, in a far greater and more horrible way than what we see in Genesis 6 through 8, when he pours wrath mightily on sinners. If we have taken shelter under Jesus' blood, then we will be found in a new ark that rises above God's wrath. Because all who get in Jesus are going to be raised just like he was raised. Third is chapter 8. Point number 3 comes from chapter 8 of Genesis. God remembers Noah. God remembers Noah. 
chapter 8 reads a lot like chapter 1. If you remember at the beginning of creation, the Spirit was hovering over the waters. If you look at chapter 8, verse 1, you see now wind, which is the same word as Spirit. It's, it's, it's blown out to dry these waters. And just like in chapter 1, God blessed humanity and the animals with this blessing. He said, be fruitful and multiply. Look in verse 17 of chapter 8. The same blessing, the same responsibility is then given. Be fruitful and multiply to, to know and the rest. And just like at, at the end of creation, remember God entered into rest and creation entered into rest. Look at verse 4. It's no coincidence that that same word is used. All was exactly the way that God intended in chapter 1. And so we're getting this hint that after the flood, in chapter 8, verse 4, the ark eventually comes to rest from the storm of judgment. What we are being told is that God has accomplished a new creation. He's done a new creation work. He has washed an evil world clean and a new world emerges. So chapter 8 gives us clues as to what life in the new world is supposed to be like. Look again in verse 1, chapter 8. But God remembered Noah. Now, if you just think carefully about what we've heard, and you hear in verse 1 of chapter 8, God now remembered Noah and all who were with him in the ark. This may sound a little strange. Why now he's saying God remembered Noah. It's not not like God uh, suddenly remembered that he left the faucet on. Oh yeah, there's people down there. Let me turn off the faucet. When it says God remembers in the Bible... That phrase means something. And what it means is that God's promises provoke him to bless his people. When it says God remembered Noah, his promise to Noah provoked God in that moment to bless Noah and all who were with him. God's promise back in chapter 6 to save the human race through Noah in chapter 8 verse 1 is being activated. Now that should sound strange to you. What do you mean it's now being activated then? Why is God talking about now saving Noah? The flood has already killed everyone else in chapter 7. There's something really important here. After the judgment ends, then God remembers. And he pours out the blessing of salvation which is more than just missing judgment. Some people think of heaven like it's just like the ark. Listen. Some people, when they imagine heaven, are just thinking about life on the ark. The few who were on the ark were not being judged like the heathens. That was all happening outside of them. They were safe from that. They were surrounded by their family. They had all the food that they could have wanted. They even had pets. That is not heaven. 
That is not what we're saved for. Noah shows us in verse 20 what we're saved for. He steps out of the ark. And he doesn't. He doesn't just build some big house. He's not rushing to experience some sort of pleasure. He's has been withheld from him from all, for all this time. That is not the blessing that God saved to him to give him. Noah knows that. Noah builds an altar. He puts whole burnt offerings on that altar and a holy fire consumes entire animals. That's what a whole burnt offering means. The whole animal is consumed in the fire. It's symbolizing what portion of Noah's life and what portion of the new world that Noah is devoting to the Lord. He gets out of the ark and he builds an altar and he says to God, all of me and all of this world is yours, O God. And then chapter 8, verse 21. When the Lord smelled that aroma, the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is now good. No, is still evil from his youth. This is amazing. Worship that proceeds from total surrender. Worship that that promises total devotion to God, fills the nostrils of God, it says, as a sweet savor of rest. And even though the flood has not washed away the sin in Noah's heart and the sin in his family's heart, it's still there. Their hearts are still evil. And the actions that flow from those hearts are planned for evil from childhood. And even still, God in His mercy responds to Noah's understanding that I and all the people of this new world will come to you only through blood, through atonement. We have to be made at peace with one another through blood that promises ultimately the Lord Jesus coming. God mercifully promises in response to that not to destroy this world. It says in verse 21, not to destroy it as I have done with a flood. That's what he's saying. Verse 22, I will not destroy this world, says verse 22, so long as the earth remains. And we know, we heard from 2 Peter earlier, Christ is going to return and this earth will not remain. A new heavens and a new earth will be made. And on that day, this world is going to burn and hell is going to be opened. So chapter 8 tells us salvation is more than missing the fiery flood. Salvation is more than missing the fiery flood. We escape from wrath to someone. We escape to someone. What that tells us, listen to me, no one who only wants to avoid hell, will. If all they want 
is chapter 7. They're not going to get it. If all someone longs for is to avoid hell, they won't get it. Chapter 8 reminds us we want the Lord. We want to be with the Lord. We want to walk with the Lord in the land of the living. One day, I've, I've told you the story before. One day, Kelly and I were swimming in, in a certain part of the Pacific Ocean that there were signs all over that said no one's supposed to swim in this part of the Pacific Ocean. And so I, like a foolish new husband, took my wife out into those waters. And the tide came. And for 30 minutes, we fought the water. And the water prevailed. We mustered up all the strength we had to fight that current and the crashing waves. We were powerless to swim 20 yards to the shore. No one in Noah's day was partly in the ark. No one in Noah's day was partly underwater. No one outside the ark could possibly make it to the ark to be saved because the waters prevailed. Christ said, my return will be like the days of Noah. He said that our world will be filled with people who are not aware. And he says, in that world, I will bring a fiery flood that sweeps them all away. Stay awake. Take cover. Beloved, take cover now by condemning the world and confiding in Christ. I'm using the language of the Bible about what Noah did in Hebrews chapter 11. He condemned the world and he confided in Christ. Take cover by condemning the world. How did Noah condemn the world? He refused to walk in the ways of the world and the ways of the unaware, acting like God is not holy, acting like Jesus is not good and worthy of our lives, acting like we don't have to give our lives as whole burnt offerings to the Lord if we love Him. And Noah spent a hundred years believing God's word and obeying all of it. Jesus says his disciples condemn the world in this way. We forsake the things of this world and we learn to obey all he commanded. Finally, take cover by confiding in Christ. Hebrews is totally clear about this. By faith. By faith, Noah condemned the world and by faith he constructed the ark if if you hear that you must condemn the ways of the world and your life should show that you condemn the truths of this world and you must walk with Jesus and you're sitting there and you know how deeply you have failed how often you fail to do that just remember it was not the righteousness of Noah's wife that saved her. She was with Noah. 
and she was in the ark. We're not told anything about her righteousness. In fact, we're not told anything about all seven of those people. And yet all seven, the full number, went in the ark with Noah and all seven of them came out safe into a new world. If you were discouraged by your sin and your lack of godliness, trust in Christ. I'm saying this to believers and unbelievers. Maybe you're going to do this for the first time and really trust in Christ alone. But if you're a believer and you have done that, you are to keep on doing that. We will escape the fiery flood only in the blood. Only in the blood. But God saves all who get in that ark with Christ. So when you fail to condemn the world, you still confide in Christ because your confiding compensates for your lack of condemning. We are saved by Christ alone, not by anything we do. Amen. Take cover in God's ark or be covered by God's wrath. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word and we pray that you would make it true in our own lives, that we would believe it in the kind of way we see in Noah, more in in the way we see in Jesus. May we devote ourselves and conform our lives to Him. And may we condemn this world, not condemning the people by saying there's no hope for you, but offering them hope as heralds of righteousness like Noah and saying, confide in Christ and turn away from the things of this world. Oh God, we pray that we would live lives that way. And ultimately on the day of judgment, we would be found blameless because we're found in the blameless one. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.